This week, we look at the 1985 instant phenomenon, Back to the Future. And along the way, we ask, would you want to hang out with your parents as teenagers? Is this a movie with a good case for studios not to meddle? And how different would this movie have been with Eric Stoltz? This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another thrilling edition of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. My name is Chris Rupp. I am joined with my co-host, Sean Culp. Thank you folks so much for joining us on what is sure to be a very exciting episode of Force Fed mm-hmm. Sci-Fi. I, for one, was very excited to watch Back to the Future. Um, Sean, I'm sure Dude, totally, your feelings were totally. shared. Totally. I love this film. We're like We were jazzed when we picked this yeah. last week. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I haven't seen this film in like a decade anyway. So I mean, it was for good you, to I mean, last time I watched this was probably three months ago. Oh, my God. This is one of those movies for me I have to watch every so often. Yeah. Because it get is nice so much fix. fun to watch. It, it is. I totally forgot how much fun. You laugh like the entire time. Yes. It's amazing. Before we get into that, though, I mean, why don't we break down the plot of the movie? Let's break it down. So we meet our main character name of Marty McFly, who is played by Michael J. Fox. Um lives in a small town in what looks to be central or southern california we're not really sure that's not essential to the plot no (laughs) um but we see things aren't that great for him in his life in 1985 present i mean his talents are kind of underwritten people call his music too loud the only really good thing he has going for him is his girlfriend jennifer parker yeah and we meet marty's parents george and lorraine and life hasn't turned out the way that it they thought it would for them they're they both don't seem very happy or interested in what's going on george is picked on by his boss biff tannen and then we meet marty's friend uh, doc brown who is played by christopher lloyd and doc has finally realized his life's ambition of building a time machine and he drags marty out at the twin pines mall at 1 15 <laughs> in the morning and we see a delorean roll out of the back of a moving van and we see some serious stuff when that thing gets up to 88 miles per hour. It goes back in time, and we as the audience seeing this thinking, oh, my God, they've just killed the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes back, and then because Doc did some nefarious things to get the time machine financed and powered, Libyan terrorists show up at a time when it was okay to put Libyan terrorists in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally thinking about that while watching this. Personally, I still think it's okay to use Libyan terrorists anyway. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you, I, I, I mean, guess, if your yeah. terrorists in a movie now are Libyan, then I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, Muammar Gaddafi kind of did his thing over there. He did. <laughs> but anyway, now in an effort to escape from these terrorists, Marty gets into the time machine and forgetting that once it gets up to eighty-eight miles per hour, it goes back in time. He finds himself transported thirty years into the past in 1955 how could he forget i like don't after know such a light an life-altering event i don't know i mean it, it's it's insane to think that he just forgot how it worked but he did but now marty has found himself in 1955 so who knows what kind of damage he's done to the timeline already yeah. just by being there just by and being. now he has to hook up with the younger version of doc brown mm-hmm. and figure out a way to get back to 1985 because in short he does not belong there no he does not and he along the way he meets the younger versions of his parents and gets to know them and in and we find out soon i mean how he changes his parents life for the better that's right i mean so i think that's a pretty good breakdown i mean if you haven't seen back to the future the movie's been out for 34 years people you've had time to see it spoilers man spoilers (laughs) abound they're, they're, it's past the what is it five years yeah five five, five years is my statute of limits on the on the spoilers there all right so before we jump into the nitty-gritty you want to do the pre-production yeah who notes? made this movie robert zemeckis 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 the now legendary robert zemeckis yeah this was before yeah that's right because when he made this film he would. He just had two box office bombs right before this. I mm-hmm. mean, he did used cars, and I think a hard day's night was the mm-hmm. other one. Those two were not very good. But then he took a break, and he did Romancing the Stone with yes. Michael Douglas and yeah. <laughs> and Kathleen Turner before um, she had her quote unquote thyroid issue. <laughs> 
But anyway, Sam that's beside the point. And Romancing the Stone was a huge hit. It did. It grossed like $84 million, $85 million. And you look at the cover, and it's like Michael Douglas swinging. Yeah, it's Michael Douglas in this like lackadaisical Indiana Jones role where he does not care, and Kathleen Turner is just annoying him to no end. Just cashing the check, man. Pretty much, but Cash. it turned out to be a great movie. It did. And because they got that film, it was box office success. They could, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, convince Spielberg to take him on. Ooh, the legendary Steven Spielberg, who is now making his very first appearance on the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast. Yes. He will come up in future episodes, I'm sure, but I mean... Zemeckis also wrote the movie with Bob Gale. So he, I mean, Zemeckis had a pretty mm-hmm. hands-on approach to the movie from when it was yeah. when it was born. Because Bob Gale, the other screenwriter, had the idea when he was visiting his parents. He found his dad's old high school yearbook and he found out his dad was the class president. Yeah, he didn't know. I mean, this the movie's credits are just pretty much a who's who of Hollywood legends. I mean, like we mentioned, Steven Spielberg... Uh, was the producer. This was also produced with Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. That's right. Uh, we have we have spoken previously about our love of Kathleen Kennedy and how she is one one if not the smartest person in Hollywood. Oh, just look at her credentials, man. She's getting nominated for so many Oscars. All I mean, of her films are insane. I mean, she was just awarded an, an honorary Oscar she as was. well, too. I mean, she was. which is a shame she can't get a, an actual one. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, director of photography was Dean Cundey, who, if you're familiar with John Carpenter films, you know he do, did a lot of his films. And now we get into the cast of the film. Yes. Uh, we As Marty McFly, like we mentioned, is Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd as Dr. Emmett Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover as uh, Lorraine and George McFly, respectfully, as Marty's parents. Uh, Thomas F. Wilson as Biff Tannen, who I didn't see much in any other movies after this because I think people were just, it was very hard for them to separate the role of Biff. Biff. <laughs> I mean, it's its the best actors who really play those villain roles so well. It is. It's so true. And we've got, I had to put this down, we have James Tolkien as uh, Mr. Strickland, who I really can't imagine anybody else in that role. Yes. Oh, he's so great. And if you know your uh, obscure 80s music, you'll notice Huey Lewis in an, yes. un- in an uncredited cameo. Uh, Claudia Wells is Jennifer Parker, who's really in like three scenes. And I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Billy Zane in one of his first roles is Biff's henchman. No way. That was Billy Zane? Yeah, the tall one. Oh, my God. Because the other guys were like really short. Okay. Um also, too, made on a budget of $19 million, so today just, that's about $46 million, so not a pretty hefty budget for no, the time. it's just insane for the time. And we mentioned, too, I mean, uh, Steven Spielberg was involved in this. Uh, this movie went through an insane amount of drafts mm-hmm. in the screenplay. I mean, there were, at one point, the... Um, rewrites, man. Rewrites, 44 drafts. It kept getting rejected and rejected and rejected. And no one wanted to pick them up. Nobody did. No one. They tried going to Disney, and then Disney said, no go because we're a family franchise. We don't want to see a mom falling in love with their uh, You boy. have a mother making out with her son. I know. They, they were freaked out. They were. Yeah, Disney <laughs> has no problem killing a cartoon deer. A, what? What are you talking about? Bambi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Disney has no problem killing cartoon, <laughs> cartoon deer moms and breaking the hearts of everybody. Yet, That's you know, right. Yeah, mom on son incest is just no go for them. All right, wait, but time out. So I'm just thinking about this. It just came to me. Star Wars. They just got the whole entire franchise. Mm-hmm. Luke kisses Leia. Yeah, but that was pre Disney. All mean, right, but they're still taking it. That's on that's PD. That's pre Disney. That's pre Disney PD. I mean, I mean, Lucasfilm can be summed up with. Um, you know, W G with George. Which <laughs> and then PD. That's uh, post-Disney. <laughs> post-Disney and with George. All right, fair enough. I mean, those, those are the two errors for Lucasfilm, but we're, uh, we're digressing a little bit. Um, <laughs> the first draft of the screenplay actually had the time machine being a refrigerator yes! and needed the power of an atomic explosion. Dude, just think of that movie. What that, that movie would, would have been insane. And All actually, right. <laughs> be- because of the atomic power, that actually had to cause some rewrites in the climax, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, the DeLorean was only chosen to serve the gag when the family mistakes it for a flying saucer. Yeah. That the, was that was the that only, was the reason, only that reason that that car was chosen. Not the, not the, the wing doors or anything, mm-hmm. which if you pay attention to the movie closely, you see actors bump their heads on those oh. on those wing doors the entire movie. God. I, I love those little touches in movies where it's like, well, we can't reshoot this, so it has to stay in there. Yeah. Like going back to Star Wars for a second, you see it all the time. 
like a stormtrooper will bang his head into one of those those rotating doors that just that go up and you see a poor stormtrooper just go and hit his head. <laughs> God, I love that. But, you know, low budget, can't shoot. Because they, they shot this film with the replacement. So if you don't know, Marty McFly was actually cast a different actor. Yeah, Eric Stoltz was originally he cast was. to play Marty. Yeah, they saw uh, him in Mask. Mask, which if you don't know Mask, it's um, it's about a young man named Rocky who suffers from facial disfigurations. I, I, I was, I'm not, I haven't seen the Same. movie. I haven't either. But I mean, <clears throat> we, if you're a movie buff, you know the movie Mask. Apparently, he got a Golden Globe nod, and they mm-hmm. really liked it. They thought he was great for it. But apparently, when they they did about four weeks filming of Back to the Future with this guy. And they just said he was too dramatic. It's so weird to see clips of the movie and production stills with Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. Yeah. I mean, these clips are out there. They're out there on YouTube. They're all over the internets these days. It's so weird to see Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. Marty McFly, excuse me. And there actually is a scene, there a is. frame in the movie where Eric Stoltz is in the movie. No it's way. It's a tiny frame. Are you serious? Yes. Well, I'll point it out when we get there, though. I'm down. Oh, um, that's so cool. And, and it was like you said, I mean, he just played the role so dramatically, and it's, 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 it's not meant to be a dramatic role. Well, they said, I think Spielberg said that the reason why it didn't work is because Michael J. Fox was the character of Marty McFly. Like, they thought of him when they wrote it. Like, he was the guy. He was the original choice, but at the time, he was doing a show called Family Ties, and the producers of that show wouldn't let him out of his contract to do it. Mm -hmm. But... When they fired Eric Stoltz, they had to go back to the producers of Family Ties and literally be on their Beg hands them. and knees and say, like, oh, my gosh, you have to give us Michael. And, I mean, it worked out for them. It sucked for Michael J. Fox because he worked insane mm-hmm. hours. He said he only slept, like, four or five hours. And he just always. If you watch the special features, the documentaries for those, they set up a station wagon for him to sleep in on the way to and from productions. It's, it's crazy. It's insane. The lengths they went to to accommodate Michael J. Fox. Because he was doing family ties and this at the same time. It, it was. was just insane. He, um, what did they say? With Michael J. Fox, with the character, as him embodying it, Eric Stoltz, they said the difference was he was trying to act to be comedic, whereas mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox, it was just his personality, man. It worked. It was. It did. Uh, Christopher Lloyd, he initially, when he took, he's the role of Doc Brown. When he took on the film, he actually, rege- he didn't want to take it. No. At first, but his wife kind of like pressured him, I guess you could say, to pick it up. Well, I mean, it worked out for him, too. I mean, and if you watch the movie, he does not play it comedically at all. It's, no. It, it feels very much like an extension of Christopher Lloyd's, like that manic character that he played on Taxi. Yes. Just yes. not coked out, but just like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> just crazy. Hey, you got to come back with me. He's just so eccentric all the time. It's great. It's insane. I love him. We talked a little bit about pre-production um, and the script writing, and then, mm-hmm. you know, once Zemeckis' star was able to get a little brighter and they took on this movie, mm-hmm. um, you know, Amblin Entertainment, that's uh, Steven Spielberg's production company, and then Universal offer, offered to distribute it. And this is where we get the studio executive known as Sid Sheinberg. Oh, my God. And he he wanted to meddle with this more than any other executive should meddle with anything. <laughs> I mean, he did have some good suggestions. He wanted to change Marty's mother's name from Meg to Lorraine. He yep. wanted to change Brown, uh, Doc Brown's name from Professor to Doc. Yeah. Uh, replacing Doc's pet chimpanzee with a dog. All so nice. all, all good things, all good things. However, n- some were not so good. He wanted to change the name from Back to the Future to Spaceman from Pluto. Oh, my God. Already, that's a terrible title. Just think of that. Like, Spaceman from Pluto? It's mm, it, what? It's so wordy. It's um, not sexy. It's not sleek. Spielberg actually sent him a memo pretty much embarrassing him. Like, oh, my gosh, that's such a funny joke that you sent to us. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean... <laughs> I mean, supposedly they didn't get a response back from Scheinberg about it, so they kept the they kept the title to Back, back to the Future, to the future. which <laughs> thankfully they did. Um, oh yeah, he was just obsessed with that name. By the way, if you were paying attention to um, the time machine being a refrigerator and the nuclear explosion, they actually used that yes, in Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. He did. He finally um, used it, <laughs> and now it, it was finally used in a movie. But now that 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 trope is um, now known as nuking the fridge in Hollywood, it is. Oh, which, God. which unfortunately we have to credit that to Mr. Spielberg. We do, <laughs> but it also too. I mean, 
in the original climax, they wanted to use a nuclear test explosion in Nevada. Yeah. But the studio deemed that as too expensive to shoot. Yeah, well, it would just change everything. I mean, he would have to show up there, mm-hmm. and then to go back. I mean, they had to change everything, but I mean, it works out better. The climax of the movie is much better with the budget constraints. Way much more interesting. It keeps it local to the yeah. to the to what is essentially. I mean, Hill Valley itself is a character in the movie. I mean, we see it mm-hmm. change from 1985 to 1955, so it, it is very important to keep it grounded in that location. Yeah. Plus, it saved them money. So they didn't have location <laughs> costs. Um, but like we met, like Eric Stoltz, four weeks into shooting, he had to be recast. You know, this actually caused the, uh, Jennifer Parker to be recast well. That's right. Yeah, so many characters in this film were cast because of Stoltz mm-hmm. that like the changes, she got changed because she was taller than Michael J. Fox. Yeah, they had to recast Jennifer Parker to be somebody who's you know not going to be two feet taller than Michael J. Fox. Fair enough. Did you know that uh, Biff, the character, um, he they actually had a guy named uh, Cohen, J.J. Cohen, that initially auditioned and they were going to give him the role of Tannen, mm-hmm. but because he wasn't as uh, imposing, he wasn't taller than Stoltz. They the gang, but they said like if Stoltz was never first cast, then they would have had a totally different Biff. I mean. But it works. Yeah, it works. You need to have him as Biff. You need to have somebody who is tall. Oh, I love the gag. Like whenever he stands up and you just see Marty peeking over his shoulder. Just like, what (laughs) is going on? Like you're taller than I thought. uh, I'm suffering from a bit of overconfidence here. Yeah. (laughs) Like you could lay me out here. The gag works. Now that we've kind of covered a bit of the pre-production stuff, I... What do you say we actually get into the movie? I'm down. Let's do it. I mean, right away we see Marty enter Doc's workshop, and all these clocks are everywhere. everywhere. I mean, it's it's almost melodic to hear all the ticking clocks, just a tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It o- opens up as a great. Felt like they have like the sequences mm-hmm. of everything. I mean, and clearly something is going on because Doc isn't there. There's piles of old dog food. I mean, mm-hmm. the toast is just getting burnt and burnt and burnt. <laughs> which I got to admit, I would, I would love to have those uh, those breakfast implements in my house. Yes, oh, it would make life so much automatic easier. toaster, coffee <laughs> that just you know goes, and you know something that you know an apparatus that feeds my dog whenever I need it to. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, I get that those apparatuses are there now. I'm just cheap. <laughs> I mean, but also, but where has Doc been? I don't know. And That's Marty just shows ju- up, like, "Hey, yeah. what's going on? Hey, <laughs> I'm. Gonna, you mind if I play with your big old amplifier? Yeah, <laughs> this thing is huge. Mm. And then he blows out the amplifier, and we find out that there's a problem with it. So, mm-hmm. he, so Doc warns him. On warns the him, which again, you know, very useful after he's just been blown 25 feet across the room. <laughs> but uh, I mean, he. Wait, Doc, are you telling me it's it's 825? Yeah. Did you notice in that scene Marty's actually wearing a watch? I know. I, I saw that and I'm like, wait, you could always look down. How Let's do you go- not know what time it is? Yeah, right. You are in a building that's literally <laughs> surrounded with clocks. I mean, I get that they're slow. I mean, that's part of the gag of the scene. But you are wearing a digital watch. Mm-hmm. And you are late for school? And why are you... Like, why are you cutting it that close anyways? Right? I mean, <laughs> what made him think, hey, I got time to go mess around in Doc's workshop. I'm sure there aren't dangerous things in there for me to play around with on a Thursday morning going to school. I'm assuming this take this is taking place on a Thursday. On a Thursday? Which is still, I mean, regardless if it's not, it's still a random day during the week. It is. I mean, like, yeah, so you got time to mess around in Doc's workshop, but you don't have 10 seconds to check your watch and see if you're actually <laughs> going to be late for school. Hey, man, he's a teenager. They don't think about those things. He just wanted to play guitar, jam out. Apparently. Yeah. I mean, we see him now at school. I mean, he's not doing much schooling. No, no. Because, I mean, we meet uh, the associate, I guess it's the associate principal, Strickland. Yeah. Who's, um, a, he's just a D-wad in this movie. Oh, he calls everyone slackers. Everyone's a slacker. You're, You're a slacker. Your, your father, father was a slacker. <laughs> You've got an attitude problem, McFly. <laughs> You're a slacker. I love that, man. And then, you know, we, we, we were introduced to Marty as a mus- uh, musician, and he's a really yep. great guitar player. He is. He jams out because uh, the school, what is it? The band? It's is talent it? show, it's battle talent of the show, bands or something. And so he wanted to get on and win it, and they were just too loud. They played like three seconds. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. <laughs> oh, man. He just can't catch a break, man. No. He just could I mean, never catch a break. Even if he didn't make it on as a 
you know, a band leader, he could have done something as like a session, uh, session musician. Mm-hmm. And so, he, I mean, apparently this thought never occurred to him because there's always a demand for a guitar player who can play like that in any band. I mean, you hang around for a little while, kid, there's going to be an opening in Metallica. Oh, yeah. Even if even a touring, even bands that need Dave extra Mustaine is going to drink touring. himself out of Metallica. You could have gotten in with them. <laughs> you didn't know that. Oh my God. You didn't know Dave Mustaine was originally in Metallica. No, <laughs> he's what gonna... got him fired was he poured beer down Cliff Burton's uh, the neck of his guitar and ruined everything, and he got fired from the band. Are you what? I am dead serious. Oh my god! I can't believe you didn't know that. No, well, I'm not a giant Metallica fan. Well, I mean, they all went on to do bigger and better things, but I mean, they did. The Dave Mustaine's initial claim to fame was, "Hey, I was, I had Kirk Hammett's job before I got fired." <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, I'm sorry, Dave, but Kirk is a much better guitarist than you. <laughs> and he doesn't pour beer down uh, guitars. Well, I don't think he drinks anymore. I mean, but I mean, we're we're digressing a little bit. We are. So, I mean, post audition in Back to the Future, we uh, we see you know Jennifer Parker try to be the good girlfriend, like cheer up, Marty. It's okay, but Marty's still very much a sex crazed teenager. He is it's like, hey, we're gonna go up to the lake. We're gonna put some blankets in the the bed of the truck, and we're gonna hang out. And it's gonna be a good time. And oh yeah. And then Jennifer Parker's dad rolls up, like. Come on, Jennifer, we need to go. <laughs> Adios. And then Marty just like, ooh. Buzzkill, man. You, I mean, literally, you could insert the sad trombone. That's his life up until this moment. And then yeah, he goes home. Just, yeah, and then he goes home. And this is where we meet the McFly family. Gosh, just pitiful. That pitiful. scene is uh, that scene's a bit rough to watch. It, it's tough to watch. It's just uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, you see a grown man who's getting talked down. By his boss, by his, and he's he's, he's doing his work for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, like guys like picking on him. He's knocking on his head. So Biff, the villain in this film, whenever um, people aren't hearing or listening to him, right, he says hello, hello. Yeah, grabs him and knocks on their head. Like, come on, that's not, that's not cool, dude. I know. I like the use of butthead though. Yeah, butthead's I, I everywhere think, in this movie. I think it does date the film just a little bit. Like, well, the who mo- says butthead? Other the than movie like, isn't really meant to exist beyond 1985. That is true. I it's mean, a, it's a nice slice of. It's 80s. a microcosm of what it was in the 1980s. I mean, you mm-hmm. have the clothing, you have the the vernacular, you have the music. The <laughs> the music, yes. I mean, we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you notice. I mean, it's a it's a Huey Lewis centered soundtrack until we're introduced to. The time machine. Yes. So you're at his house. You're seeing the McFlies. You're seeing the uh, dynamic, which there really isn't. No one's like communicating. Nobody's to happy. Each other. I mean, no one's happy. Lorraine, when she's talking about meeting George for the first time, I mean, you can tell there's this sad twinge in her face. Yeah. Like she's taken to drinking. She's gotten. She's gotten fat. Her. Oh, yeah. Her little brother's in jail. Yeah. And there, and she's like telling the story of how she met her husband, and like he's not even looking at her; he's, he's just watching, watching the, TV. the TV. He's not interested. He's just kind of oblivious as to what's going on. Um, his older brother is working at a Burger King. His sister, I mean, isn't doing much with her life. So, I mean, the family is just kind of stuck, for lack of a better word. Yeah, they just can't get by. It's just like it's like Marty. Marty just has that McFly curse to it. Lorraine him. is drinking Stoli and walking around the house with a cigarette. I mean, it's the good old days when you <laughs> could still smoke inside. Yeah, she's just filling up half the cup full of straight booze. Oh, my God. I mean, and I'm not trying to criticize her choice of alcohol, but Stoli, really? <laughs> You can't afford a little something that's high class. I mean, was Kettle One around in 1985? You could have got yourself a bottle of that. Some great. <laughs> you could have gotten yourself some grade A spirits, honey. Oh, my God. So then we go to uh, the mall. The mall. We're at the Twin Pines Mall at Twin 115 Pines. in the morning. And we, we see, we don't see Doc anywhere. We don't. But we see his van of Dr. Emmett Brown's 24-hour scientific services, which I have to ask, who needs scientific services at the drop of a hat? I don't know. It's like, hey, Doc, I got something going on. Like, I, I thought about calling an electrician, but I thought I would call you first. I know. It's like, can, can you help out with uh, my alternating currents here? I'm curious. I want to see that, like, TV series where it's just Doc helping different people out. Yeah, I, like I want to see like I want to see, see a TV commercial with Doc actually advertising these twenty-four hour scientific services. I, that is I, that's what I want to see out I of that. No, I'm so curious. Maybe an answering machine. Uh, just something, 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 something. This is like, hello, Doctor Brown's twenty-four hour scientific services. What are your needs today? 
So we get the, but we get the DeLorean. We finally, they reveal the time machine. I love it. And that's where we get our first twinge of a dramatic theatrical score. Yes. Where that would highlight the DeLorean is revealed Mm -hmm. and it's pouring smoke out of everywhere. Everywhere. It's just backing out. Everywhere. And then we see Doc Brown get out, which he's literally been hotboxed in like car steam the entire time. You know, that was actually, someone was critical about that. How did he get inside the car? Yeah. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Then you notice it doesn't happen at any other point in the movie where there's just smoke is just in like enveloped him in the car. It doesn't happen at any other point during the movie when Marty does his whole time traveling romps. He doesn't get out and is like, oh man, it's hot in there. And then Doc, you know, explains what's going on. And then we get the test of the DeLorean. And Doc is perfectly willing to potentially sacrifice his dog. I mean, he is. He doesn't know what's going to happen. For, I mean, he says, like, you're going to see some serious stuff. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even know that it's going to, you know, actually time travel. For all, we, I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is probably the first real test of the time machine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He. I don't think, I think he was winging it. It was just oh, yeah. the researcher. He was absolutely winging. He's like, get in there, Heine. Researcher's confidence, man. He's like, I can just get another I guess dog. In the, in the test screening, people were terrified, thinking that they killed the dog. Seriously? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's People awesome. were like holding their breath like, oh, my God, did they kill the dog? And then the dog comes back, and they're all, oh, thank goodness. He's alive. The dog oh. is alive. And then while Marty, Marty has to film him the whole time, and Marty, you know, you know, he wants to stand a safe distance back, and then Doc shoots him that look like, hey, what are you doing? Get over here. Like, oh, I, I don't love know. that look. That look is so perfect. Yeah, but it's just like. Hey, Doc, do you know, like, you're about to send this car screaming towards us at 90 miles an hour? I mean, <laughs> if it hits us, I mean, the car is going to win. Right. I mean, I get that it's stainless steel, but I mean, I mean, when it comes to humans battling a car, the car wins every single time. Hey, man, he wanted to set up the artistic view of the flames. Well, that's your scientific services right there. That's just physics. The car, A 2,000-pound car is going to win a battle against a 200-pound <laughs> human. There's your scientific services. So, the, so it works. But speaking of scientific services, I mean, if you think about it, there's really not much science involved in this movie. No. No, there isn't. He doesn't really talk too I mean, much about why it. why 88 miles per hour? I why, know. why is that the magic time travel zone? Why 1.21 gigawatts? Yeah. Why does it take a nuclear reaction to make it work? Why is the DeLorean cold after that first trip? What the hell is the flux capacitor? And it never what power is, is that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's really only speculative physics regarding timelines, but that's that's a common theme throughout the we entire sh- series. We should go to O'Reilly's and order a flux capacitor. Yeah, I bet they would have it in stock. You know, they actually do. O'Reilly's, if you go online and you type in like a certain code, the flux capacitor actually comes up. I don't want that. It's, it's I don't want it. You don't want it? I don't want that in my car. <laughs> I don't want that in any car. That's dangerous because people are going to ask questions like, hey, what's that doing there? Well, why do you have that in your car? You... Yeah, that, that, I just that's a gigantic waste of money for me. Let's get into time travel briefly. Let's do it. I mean, personally, I don't think time travel is possible. I don't know what your feelings about it are. I don't think it's possible. Um, I just, it just, no, no, I don't think so. I think like time like relativity and stuff like i know online i was reading some research about like how light speed and such like if we're in a ship and you're going away from earth and then you come back at a certain uh speed you may be gone for seven years right and so Mm -hmm. like let's say you know we leave now i leave at 27 i'd be 34 when i come back but the world with the rotations and all that it could be advanced 40 years yeah that's possible. But to go back in time or forward in time, I just don't I just don't think it's possible. Here's my thoughts on this. I mean, first, it's going to require a ton of energy and power to actually make time travel possible. It's I mean, so more much. so than nuclear. We would have to harness something way more dangerous and way stronger than nuclear. And already there, I'm like, whoa, let's not go there. Because <laughs> if it goes wrong, it's going to go wrong in a big time way. I mean, second, and there's no theory yet, I mean, on how to, there's no theory yet on how to even accomplish time travel. Mm -mm. There's no way of knowing how, how would you even go about doing it? I mean, in this movie, we see a very, if you break it down, it's a very simplistic way to time travel. Mm -hmm. You hook up a bunch of electrical components to a car, a nuclear reactor, and bada bing, bada boom, you can time travel. And then we see other examples in movies, like if you look at Superman, it's just Superman flies around the world and changes the Earth's rotation and then changes it back. I mean, that's, again, no real explanation as to how that works yeah because all you've done is just reverse earth's rotation and you've messed up the day night cycle congratulations superman you've made things worse (laughs) and then we see like the if you've read hg wells is the time machine i mean i'm pretty sure his 
depiction of the time uh, device was just a chair. Mm-hmm. No mention of like, oh, well, where do you like, where do you input, where do you want to go, or how does it work? Like, where is the power source coming from? So there's very simplistic ways, and there's very complex ways of portraying time travel. But either way, there's no clear definition on how to do it. Like, no, it's not like traveling to space. Like, okay, well, we need something that's ca- we need a vehicle that's capable of space travel. And it's the same principle for time travel. I mean, what's what's your vehicle? What what's your base level of actually traveling in time and it's like plus you it's just it's beyond me how would you be able to break people down from the atomic level yes. and then figure out a way to transport you into another decade time like it just i don't understand mm-hmm. well and, and finally too i mean if it is something that is possible it will either be a really expensive or be quickly made illegal yes because I mean, there's always some events that people want to tr- uh, time travel back and see. Some people want to see the Gettysburg Address. Some people want to see signing the Declaration of Independence or changing the your of the life. Wall. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it's it's real. It's it's time dimensional uh, consequences mm-hmm. of actually being able to t- uh, travel back in time because you are affecting in a small way. You are affecting events. Oh, totally. And we'll see how like small events will shape the future in this movie for sure. Absolutely. But we see Doc, you know, explain how it works and how he got the nuke the plutonium to get to power the time machine. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get our Libyan terrorists. Yes. And the Libyan terrorists come because he built them a faulty bomb that didn't work. Out of pinball machine parts yeah. or something. <laughs> in order to get the plutonium. And so they come after him. They start shooting at Doc. Uh, they kill him. Yes. They shoot him. They kill him. And then Marty gets into the time machine. Um, due goes to back a, to 1955. Yep. He, he doesn't. He just goes, races around a parking lot, and boom, he appears. Boom, he appears. I mean. In, in a farm. <laughs> in a farm of all places. He crashes into a nice little barn and wakes up the uh, folks. And you have to think about, too, I mean, science fiction in the 1950s. I mean, it is set I mean. It's either all aliens mm-hmm. or it's all giant bugs or giant some things that are coming around and just wrecking small town USA. <laughs> I mean, either giant ants or it's an amorphous blob that's swallowing everything. But this was a DeLorean, Chris. Mm-hmm. 1955 was actually only eight years after the quote unquote Roswell incident and War of the Worlds came out in 1953. That's true. And everyone thought the War of the Worlds was true. No, this, they, the they actual like movie, people, not the radio broadcast. Oh, the radio broadcast people thought was absolutely true. Yeah, people were killing themselves because they Orson Welles was a jerk. <laughs> he was a douche. Yeah, he was He was not a, a friendly person. <laughs> they thought it, he was just a great reader. But, I mean, he, Marty is still unsure, like, hey, did I actually travel back in time and it doesn't hit him because he drives by his old neighborhood and or his empty. current neighborhood and it's empty. He's like, like, oh, okay, well, not really going on there. Yeah. And then he winds up in the Hill Valley Town Square and Mr. Sandman is playing in the background. Oh, yes. Yeah, that is eer- eerily similar to a Twilight Zone episode. It's the uh, very first Twilight Zone episode. Uh, Where is everybody is the name of the episode. Oh, that's cool. Where it's it's a similar plot device of some... Of somebody walking around a town square going, like, where am I? Where is everybody? What's going What's on? What's going on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, then, and then the score gets all tense when Marty looks up at the clock tower and sees, oh, my God, it actually is working. Yes. I did travel back in time. Yeah. Which that clock tower will be very important later oh, yes. on. As, uh, as my uh, Hill Valley Preservation Society t-shirt shows that that clock tower will be very important for the climax of the movie. So Marty realizes he's back in time. He decides to seek out... Doc Brown. Yes. In the diner where George is enjoying his bowl of soup. Yes. <laughs> George McFly, who is his father. He yes. sees the younger version. Um, it's He's such a nerd in this film. Oh, God, yes. He's a, a nerd. Apparently, the actor, he improvised like 50% of it. Like all like the shaking Glover, hands it, and everything. I mean, it's one thing to improvise like facial tics or yeah. involuntary tics of the hands or things like that, but... You can't claim improvisation like your Marlon Brando. You didn't. You didn't invent it, dude. And <laughs> and I guess Crispin Glover was a nightmare to work with on set. That's what they said. He was. They had to like reel him in because he just wasn't grasping his character at all. Well, again, I mean, it works that he's playing him straight laced and he's playing him like he does. It works with that movie, but I mean, as a director and as a screenwriter, oh god, I imagine it would get pretty short pretty quick. Probably, probably. 
So he finds his dad, and then he, you know, he follows him, <laughs> and then we see George in a tree. Oh yes! So the big plot for how their parents met was uh, Lorraine said that his her father hit him with a car. So Marty goes back, sees his dad in a tree, and he's peeping. He's a oh peeping Tom. He's a te- peeping Tom. He's a peeping Tom. George is a future stalker. He is a future stalker. Because imagine if it didn't work out with Lorraine. He would just find some other girl to like, you know, nest up in a tree and spy on. I know. You're just, I saw that. I'm like, what is this? What? It's, instead, uh, Marty saves his dad. He says, mm-hmm. look out. And he pushes him out of the way, and he ends up getting hit. By his grandfather. Another one of these damn kids jumped in front of my car. Oh, that light is I so great. Light. I love that. It's amazing. It, it turns out we meet Lorraine now, Marty's mother. It turns out she's just as thirsty as Marty is in 1985. Very thirsty. Oh, my goodness. Dude, coping she, out his underwear, calling on Calvin Klein. She took his pants off, man. She wanted yeah. him to spend the night. It's oh, yeah. crazy. Oh, God. But then we meet the, um, the, the family. Baines family. Yes. Lorraine Baines. We meet, you know, we meet the family. We see little uh, baby Joey in his playpen. Yeah, so I love that. You know, so you're my uncle Jailbird Joey. <laughs> but I get used to these bars, kid. <laughs> I love that line. That is probably my favorite line in the movie. So many good lines. I love how everyone thinks Marty's in the Coast Guard mm-hmm. because of his jacket. And then they ask him, "What do you do for a profession?" And then you just start saying, "Oh, Coast Guard." <laughs> <laughs> like this brilliant. Up with his life uh, preserver. Dork thinks he's gonna drown. <laughs> So this scene is actually where we get our uh, first entry in a uh, toxic fandom. Yes. Which, if if you're listening to the show for the first time, we try to find these little moments of toxic fandom that are maybe related to the movie or may be not re- or may not be related to the movie. And in this scene, um, uh, Mr. Baines rolls in the family's first television, and out of the three channels they have at the time in 1955, and I'm in, a, in the Honeymooners was probably on two of those. Mm-hmm. And so they put on the Honeymooners. And the, the courtesy of IMDb, in reality, the episode of the Honeymooners Marty watches at the Baines house did not air the night of his unexpected visit on November 5th, 1955. <laughs> the proper episode should have been the Sleepwalker, but instead it was the Man from Space, which originally aired later on New Year's Eve, 1955. So that means somebody knows literally the airing schedule of the Honeymooners backwards and forwards enough that it was a problem to protest it on the internet. How? Why? Why do you have that much time on your hands? Well, why do you have that much time and why do you watch the Honeymooners that much to where it's now become a problem and you need to let the internet know that you... That the that Back to the Future is now ruined for you <laughs> because the wrong Honeymooners episode is playing. Forever. Forever. I can no longer watch Back to the Future because they've ruined Jackie Gleason's legacy. They've soiled it. It's forever lost. Soiled it. <laughs> and while Jackie Gleason is making metaphors about beating his wife, yes, that is your yeah, your problem is the wrong episode is showing in Back to the Future. God. <laughs> yeah, that show is problematic nowadays. I love the internet. <laughs> but I mean, Marty is creeped out by his mom hitting on him because yes. I mean, why wouldn't and why would any person not be creeped out by that? And he goes and runs to Doc Brown's house. Yes, he meets Doc Brown, who is a very eccentric man. He has a device on his head where he's trying to read the thoughts of Marty. And so Doc Brown just opens the door. He grabs him. He says, "Don't say anything. Nothing at all." He puts a plunger on his head and says. And he just starts guessing. You hair. want me to? You want me to make a donation to the Coast Guard oh, Youth Auxiliary? Yes, I love how they keep referencing the Coast Guard. But then Marty explains everything, what he's there for. Uh, he's a time traveler. He, he convinces came back his in doc time. and he shows him where he hid the DeLorean. And can I just say that? Marty didn't exactly do a very good job of hiding the DeLorean. No, I was thinking that when I saw it. I'm like, really? Like five branches? I mean, That's you hit it? five branches. I mean, I mean, assuming that nobody else drives on the road that he hit it on, you'd think somebody would notice, hey, that's a boxy-looking car that's hiding what? behind a billboard <laughs> and crudely covered with branches. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? We talked last time about how... Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't quite as good at his job. So I think that might be a recurring theme with this show is examining people who aren't doing their job up to par. No, it, and Marty is the newest example of guys messing it up. It's like you, terrible. You are from a car, you are driving around in a car that's not even been made yet and your idea is to hide it with five or six bushes. Branches. That's it. Behind a billboard. 
behind your you, billboard. You have to hope to God that nobody else drives down the road and sees that thing because they're going to say, hey, what's that in 1955? It's 1955. They don't have cell phones. People are like observing this. Ever. No, I mean, I'm assuming they might still be using a town crier or something. Hear ye, hear ye. There is a strange car out on Route 1. Right. What is this box from Satan? <laughs> And then you know, Doc, Marty has to explain to Doc how it works. He shows in the video. I mean, and I have to ask this too. Do you think it's gigawatts or gigawatts? I th- I I think it's gigawatts. But well, apparently both are correct pronunciations. They are apparently both correct. Mm-hmm. I do like how he says gigawatts. <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> it's, I did also like how when he was playing the uh, camera, which somehow connected to a TV from 55. Yeah. Uh, that's ha- weird that he's able to kind of Frankenstein that together and make well, it work. One of the cords just like comes unplugged when he like lifts up the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the goofs, man. Oh boy. <laughs> they, just, they just left it in there, man. God. But now Marty has to get his parents to like each other, to fall in love with each other. Yep. Now this is where the tension kind of builds in the movie. It does a great job of doing this. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, I mean, he ha- in, in a way, he has to get to know his parents in a very short time period and make them very fall short. in love with each other. A couple days. And it's a great scene, and I love this scene so much. It's when Marty is talking with George, and he realizes that he has the same insecurities as his father does. Mm-hmm. George is trying to become a successful science fiction writer, mm-hmm. and Marty is trying to make it as a successful musician, and George just has that throwaway line of like, I, I can't imagine you would know what that's all about. And he's like, yeah, I think I do. It's just great that they're able to connect that quick. Mm-hmm. Marty at this point doesn't really know his parents. No, he doesn't know anything about him. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's I mean, very. He, he does make the effort, I would say, to get to know his father more than he does to get to know Lorraine. Well, yeah, but I think that's more of an effort to like, hey, I don't want my mom who has the hots for me to kind of get any ideas. Well, yeah, trying to jump his ship, man. Yeah, oh like I don't want to make it seem like I'm getting to know my mom while she has a hots for me. Because if she has a hots for me, well, then I disappear and I don't exist. Exactly. Um, that's like for those um, the cost to the film is because he messed up the timeline his brother he has a picture and then slowly they're disintegrating they're yes. disappearing off the you picture you see actually his brother start disappearing when he shows the picture to Doc when he meets the younger Doc in 1955 yeah. his head's gone and then it just keeps going less and less and less so that's why he has to go and make sure they fall in love and then George is uh, convinced by Marty as Darth Vader yes. from the planet Vulcan. He has to convince and, him. And the soundtrack of Eddie Van Halen. Oh, my God. Because Marty tries to, like, hook up his parents. He's like, hey, meet George. This is my great buddy George. And Lorraine's just, like, awestruck by Marty. Whenever she sees him, she's like, oh, my God. She sees the purple underwear. Calvin Klein. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he, oh, by the way, you would think that George would remember the alien who ordered him to pursue Lorraine and win her affection. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm like, that's kind of a traumatic event. I mean, and I, and I, I mean, you were, if, if an alien shows up in your bedroom and tells you to pursue this girl you have the hots for, you remember the name of that alien for the rest of your life totally but he never did and then in 1985 he will i mean if he's a big a sci-fi nerd as we think he is he'll have watched star trek and he'll have watched star wars in the future mm-hmm. you would think he'd be like vulcan darth vader <gasps> you'd think like what happened like what's going on i mean george lucas is i mean unless this is a universe where star wars doesn't exist i guess we, maybe I no, I, no, no, probably they, not. They have references. They reference Ronald Reagan as president. Yeah. So yeah, they have to. It's it's it's, it's crazy. I mean, that is like the plot hole of the movie, though. And now, <laughs> now we get to now we get to it's the plot hole of the film. That's the plot hole of the film. <laughs> he didn't realize it's all a it, fake. It is. It is all a fake. Michael J. Fox is a hack. Like I said. <laughs> If some alien visited you <laughs> and threatened to melt your brain if you didn't pursue a girl, yeah. you remember the name of that alien. Maybe that same alien visited George Lucas and told him about Star Wars, Darth Vader, and then that same guy visited the other, told him about Vulcan, and then he helped jumpstart I think we're getting too far down that <laughs> rabbit hole, so I'm going to pump the brakes there on that. But then, so in Marty's uh, quest to get his parents together, we wind up back in the diner, and this is a yes. scene where we actually see uh, get Eric Stoltz in the movie. Okay, really? If you watch closely, it's actually Eric Stoltz that's throwing that punch at Biff and knocking him down. No way. Yeah, way. That's Eric's, Eric's, that's like the one usable frame of Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future is him punching Biff and knocking down his goons. I can't, wow. The look on your face is just like pure amazement. I can't believe it. 
Yeah. How did I miss that? Wow. Well, because, I mean. That's brilliant. You can't ask Michael J. Fox, who's a shrimp, to punch out Thomas Wilson. No, you can't. I mean. Well, he's probably too short. So I'm sure they did. I'm sure Michael J. Fox needs help reaching the top shelf at the uh, the grocery store or something. (laughs) Especially now. Oh, God. That's terrible. I was waiting for one of us <laughs> to make a Parkinson's joke. We're sorry, Michael J. Fox. No. You, you are you're a tremendous talent, and we hope and we hope that you uh, yeah. that your ailments uh, heal soon. You're we, a good guy, man. You're a good guy. We appreciate everything you've done, and the world of entertainment needs you. But um, I see why they couldn't use it because he's too short. I'm he's sure too they, short. I'm sure it would have been realistic for Michael J. to have a scene of Michael J. Fox trying to punch out Thomas Wilson. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even even a movie, even a classic movie like Back to the Future can't resist an old-fashioned poop joke and oh yeah at the chase scene yeah like oh my god there's poop and then the car runs into the poop truck and poop is just everywhere all over them so that becomes a running gag throughout the series like biff always hits a truckload of crap. either biff or his relatives they just always get covered in crap you would think like he always. would just have like the family would have such a like a genetic aversion to poop at this point right like no i can't use the toilet like why not there's poop like so what like no you don't understand there's poop we're always covered in poop and why is the poop so perfectly placed that's my thing have you ever like it's always in that spot it's amazing and why do they have that much poop like where does all that poop come from the farms from not, well, yeah, I mean, 1955. In, in 1955, yeah, and America was still very much farmland. I mean, there were there were farms that and cows and pigs and poop. I mean, poop was everywhere. That was like a fertilizer. They're I on mean, their I, way to fertilize. I don't even. Yeah, that was a very cheap way of fertilizing. Everything was just, hey, let's get the you know yesterday's uh, cow crop in here. <laughs> and just Ca- poop, cutting the poop everywhere. So we have that great chase scene with the uh, skateboard. He runs into the poop car. <laughs> How many more times are we going to say poop? Probably a lot, All right. especially when we get to um, part two and three. Oh yes, yeah. We're not. We are not doing part two and three today. This will be no, a four-hour no, no, long no, show. No, no. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> but the movie progresses. George, I mean, Marty does his bit to help George build his confidence, yep. and Marty does have to take Lorraine to the dance. Mm-hmm. But they formulated a plan to kind of you know make George out to be the hero. I mean, the movie resolves the Oedipal relationship by having Lorraine being so uncomfortable kissing Marty. Yeah, yeah. Where that was a perfect line. It's just like kissing my brother. It's like, no, I think I get your point. And then Biff, and then Biff kind of walks in, messing up the plan. And Biff's friends make no effort to stop him from trying to rape Lorraine. None at all. Those are some terrible people. Seriously. I mean, it's one thing to be a henchman of the bully, but you are literally walking away from someone who's perfectly willing to rape a young girl. And he was. He, like, grabs her in the car, and he's just like, this ain't no peep show. And then then she's perfectly cool hanging out with her attempted rapist 30 years later. I know. That is so weird. Yeah. Like, no. Maybe she- No, 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 no. Well, maybe he said, I'm sorry. And man, yeah, because that makes it all better. Well, I don't know. We don't know like what their relationship was because it seemed like George was the boss of Biff later on. Thirty well, years but later, thankfully George intervenes. The music builds, and yeah, the yeah. audience gets it shot in Fruta when you know George knocks out Boom. Biff in one punch. I mean, that's a, that's a great scene when the music's building. It's, so it's good. that horror movie psycho score provided by Alan Silvestri, and he just knocks him clean with one punch. Love it. I love the scene where they lock Marty in the car. The keys are in here. The keys are in here. All the dudes get out and they just start slapping the guys. Go home to your mama. Go home to your mama, Pecklewood. <laughs> Who are you calling spook, Pecklewood? Gosh. So because uh, the guy tries, to, he has to use like, what does he use? A it screwdriver? Like a screwdriver. Cuts his hand. Cuts his hand so he can't play guitar because they're at the dance now and they have this band playing, Earth Angel. So they have Marty play the guitar in place of the lead singer. Mm-hmm. And... So while he's playing, Marty starts to disappear because mm-hmm. uh, his father and Lorraine are dancing. Some ginger guy steps yeah, in. Yeah, some drunk teenager, which there are a quite an odd number of drunk teenagers at this 1950s dance. Tons of them. Well, I mean. That's poor adult supervision right there. They're not watching that punch bowl pretty clearly. No. No. So many drunkards. <laughs> but again, George steps realizes his self-confidence, steps in, kisses Lorraine, and the future is secure. Marty is good. He's not going to disappear. Mm-hmm. And in kind of like this last, you know, goodbye to 1955, we get the fa- now famous, the Johnny B. Good scene. Which was my least favorite part of the film. 
Yeah, I mean, for you, you said that's the, your lens flare of the movie. That's my lens flare of the film. I just, it didn't advance the plot. I didn't like how there were so many dudes, like, looking under the chicks' dresses. The chicks were being flipped over in front of the camera, spreading their legs. Well, apparently, this is the 1950s. Everybody knows how to swing dance. I guess. Apparently, everyone took that swing dance class. Personally, I mean, to me, I enjoy the scene a lot. It's, you know, you got the evolution of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, imagine... If Zemeckis cut it out, I don't think the movie would be able would have been as memorable. It yeah. probably still would have been a classic, but it's that like, last little touch in there. You know, Marty plays as Johnny B. Good. You know, he you know he does his Angus Young impression, his his Eddie Valen impression, mm-hmm. his Jimi Hendrix impression, and then he All the everybody's impress- just looking at him like, dude, chill. <laughs> it's like I guess you guys aren't ready for that, <laughs> but your kids are gonna love uh, it. Yeah, that and then he leaves. He get, he gets one last goodbye with teenage uh, George and Lorraine, mm-hmm. and he walks away. And now we get the climax of the movie, mm-hmm. where there is an expected lightning strike is going to hit the clock tower, and that's going to generate enough energy the to get Marty twenty one power the DeLorean and get him back to nineteen eighty five. Yeah, because he knew the strike was coming. That would be the one point twenty one gigawatts. They rigged a cable uh, makeshift like hanger. Attached to the yeah, flux this is capacitor, really long, like copper wire hanger or something. And just a bunch of wires, and Doc can do it because everyone knows him as Doc Brown in the city. So he's just like, known as like the town crazy scientist. Yeah, I love how they're like the policeman walks up to him. He's like, "So, do you got any permits?" And then he's like, "Of course, I have permits." Reaches for his wallet. Do you think he actually had a permit, or he was just bribing him? No, he's bribing him. Absolutely. Yeah, he's pulling out a twenty and just be like, "Hey, why don't you uh, say you didn't see anything?" Huh? Wink, That's wink. right. <laughs> because he he was apparently. Apparently he had fortune. I believe there yeah, was like his a dad throwaway was, his line. His dad was a very rich man. Mm-hmm. So they have it. Uh, the They set up the clock tower, but then like some drama happens, like everything. The cables come untouched, so then Doc has to climb up on the clock and race time, connecting the cables before the lightning strikes or before Marty gets there. The music swells once again, and then boom! in a flash, the DeLorean's gone, and then we get, we you know, dun, 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 and we see... The time the trip is successful. Mm-hmm. Marty's gone back to 1985, but Marty has given himself or tried to give himself enough time to help Doc save Doc and prevent his death. Because the whole time, uh, he wanted to. He wrote a letter for mm-hmm. Doc Brown, telling him, "Hey, you're going to get shot on the night that I come back," mm-hmm. and he wanted to warn him to wear a bulletproof vest, whatever. And Doc tore it up and said, "No, I don't want to know anything about my future because that'll disrupt." space-time continuum disrupt my present whatever is going to happen so whatever happens is just going to happen well as a scientist that is something that you have to yeah. you have to adhere to is your experiments and the ideas you have do have real world consequences they and do especially when you're doing something like time travel you have to understand that even the smallest thing has the biggest ripple effect i really admired that about doc's character throughout this film he was just so grounded he so he was so grounded so and he was a scientist to the bone pretty much he was but, so when Marty comes back, he sets it 10 minutes, but then the car dies, so he jogs. Because it's not exciting if the car doesn't die. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta have that tension. So he jogs over to the parking lot, Doc gets shot, and then, surprise, surprise, Doc actually pulled the letter out of the trash, taped Bull- it. Yeah, just got the, all the remnants <laughs> together from that windy night and was able to make something coherent out of it. And he was like, you know what? I thought about it, but then I said, what the hell? So then he wore a bulletproof vest. Mm-hmm. And then and it stopped that AK forty seven. Yeah, that is a big old round coming Come from an AK forty seven, and he got shot multiple times. Multiple times. And yet you just see like, well, you know, it kind of worked, but uh, yeah, there is no way he would be okay. He would just be like, oh, it hurts so much. <laughs> we'll just because keep in mind, it, it, it yes, it's a bulletproof vest, but, but it's not. it's stopping something that's moving 2,000 feet God. a second. On a dime, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and being shot, not at point, point blank you, range. You just open it up. I imagine his chest would look like Grimace. Oh god, the McDonald's mascot. <laughs> it would be the same color as Grimace. That's amazing, Grimace. Well, I mean, <laughs> everything knocks okay. Everything's all right. Marty yeah. sneaks back into his house, and then he wakes up. What is you know resuming the the previous timeline that we were in? Yeah. So suppose I mean it's it's almost like Marty hasn't been gone. No. But he wakes up and things look different around the house. There's oh. there's nice furniture. His um, 
his his uh his brother is going off to a decent job. His sister has a bunch of boys chasing after her. Yeah. Which yeah. He's like, Hey, what is this? It's breakfast. Why don't you sit down? And then his parents walk in. From you know, Lorraine golf? isn't drinking a bunch. She's, she's super thin. fit. It just yeah. looks like they just got back from like some tennis vacation. So really, all George needed was a bit of self-confidence, and boom, like the future would have been good. What does he say? If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Yeah, which Marty, yeah, Marty tells him that, and then he just stole it. He did. He's like, like I always told you, I guess. In hindsight, the ending has been a bit criticized. Yes, the ending. Because it it shows a very the very opulence of the 1980s of the kind of like this money hungry culture that was permeating throughout the country at the time, and you know there's the nice furniture, there's the expensive car in the garage, which Biff is now kind of kowtowed to George, and, yeah, and has you know learned some humility. He does, actually seems like a decent person, maybe. Yeah. I don't know, but that all we see is like tracksuit Biff. Tracksuit Biff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we we get tracksuit Biff now as a as a car detailing specialist. <laughs> Adidas tracksuit Biff. And then we get the end. We get the now famous ending of Marty. You got to come back with me. Yeah, where it's like setting up for the next sequel. I don't think they actually intended to do a sequel because back uh, part two didn't come out. I think until like 1989. Yeah. So it took them some time to really develop I, a sequel. Apparently, this is what they said. It took two years to write a script and to build all the structures for the sequel. So that's why it took so long. And they had to figure out a... Because like they filmed part two and three back to back. They did. Mm-hmm. They did. And they did a trailer for three while... <laughs> I think it's the only film ever to have a trailer for its sequel in the film. Yeah, that's crazy. Which is weird. Yeah, but this this show, this episode isn't about those two movies. No, it is not. All right, so the movie's over. I mean, do you want to... Let's talk about what happened in post-production and the legacy of the movie. Legacy. All right, so because of all the delays in casting it and filming it, there was really only nine and a half weeks to do all the post-production work. Mm -hmm. So that's the score, that's the visual effects, that's the sound, and that's the film editing itself. They wanted it to come out in May originally, but they didn't wrap up filming, I think, until April. They wrapped it up in August, and it was set for... Uh, they they set they wrapped filming in April and the film was set for an August release. But then they pushed it to July, and they had their two editors working twenty four hour shifts. Well, you know why they moved it up to July? They what? it was the strength of that test screening I mentioned yes, earlier. They yes. showed they showed a test audience a rough cut of the film and people were cheering they at the end of it. it. They loved it. Loved it. They, they loved wanted to get it out quick and they had a twenty four a crew working twenty four seven to get the visual effects shots done, the sound <clears> editing, the mixing. And it all turned out okay, I would say. Yeah, it, it did. It <laughs> I did. mean, Alan Silvestri's score is timeless. I it mean, is. I find myself humming it all the time. The man does fantastic work. Um, there's really o- there's only 32 visual effects shots in the entire movie. I know, and and, and it insane. all works. It does. Every, I mean, it, it, there's it, some scenes. I mean, yeah, it does look a bit off. But that's just the limitations of the technology at the time. Especially in the eight. Oh, yeah. And the movie's not about those shots. It's about the story of Marty meeting his parents and I don't want to say making their lives, like, correct. It's it's inadvertently making things better. Yes. So the movie came out. You want to know how much it grossed? It was like $389 yep. million. It's, yeah. It was the highest grossing film in 1985. It was. It was number one at the box office, get this, for 11 weeks. weeks. You That's know what insane. knocked it off? What? National Lampoon's European Vacation. Which, you know, I mean, 11 weeks is insane enough that to is. think about. That's I mean, like it was, three months, man. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, the most recent stretch I can think of where that happened was Black Panther last year. Yeah. Because that was number one for something like six or seven straight weeks. It was insane. <laughs> and that grossed like almost over a billion. I think domestic it grossed something like eight or nine hundred million. That's insane. It's a, Yeah, that's insane to think about. And then... The Oscar season came around. It yeah. was nominated for four of them. Four. Won like, for best sound editing. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for best sound mixing, best original screenplay, and best original song, which was the Huey Lewis song, mm-hmm. uh, Power of Love, that plays a couple of times in the movie. Yes. Um, Famous. You know, Ronald Reagan was, not surprisingly, was a big fan of the film. He because was. he gets a tiny little throwaway joke when uh, Marty is meeting Doc. He's like, what, Ronald Reagan, the actor, is your president? Yeah. What? 
And then later on, he's like, it makes sense why you need an actor as your president. I guess when they were screening the film at the White House for him, when they said that line, he actually requested yeah. the projectionist to play that scene back. Yeah. He's like, wait, they said my name in the movie? Yeah, he couldn't believe it. And he uses a reference uh, from the film in his State of the Union address in 86. Yeah. God, he loved that film. Oh, yeah. He was a, he was a big-time jokester. He loved Hollywood. He loved movies. So... Yeah, it's not surprising that he was a big fan of it. Right on, man. I mean, the, and the movie has gone on to be on numerous best film of all times lists. I mean, we could mm-hmm. be here for an hour just listing off all the lists that that's on. Oh, yeah, AFI, um, all of them, man. My favorite thing about it, like post-legacy, was this was actually selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in 2007. Holy cow. So if you're unfamiliar of what that means is they take a copy of the film, either like it's on a reel or some type of format, and they store it for preservation in the Library of Congress in case there's something uh, tragic that happens and people, you know, like the original cut is lost or something. So yeah. in the event that that does happen, the Library of Congress has it for preservation. So I, to me, that is the highest wow. compliment you could give a movie where it is selected no matter what happens. This is always going to be available for viewing. That's so cool. And I think we have to talk about this, too. I mean, we're seeing a lot of reboots of older movies. We're seeing them either in movies or we're seeing them in television shows. Personally, this this movie should not be touched. I don't think so. For all intents and purposes. And thankfully, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale have made uh, assurances that that will not happen. They own the rights to this movie for now until the end of time. Really? So they're not, they're making so sure. pretty much the only thing that the only way that a potential reboot could happen is if they die. Oh, okay. So I mean, they both own the rights to it. They both have to die for anybody to even consider doing it. But I mean, it's again, it's it, one of those. It, it's it, this can't. is one of those movies you cannot touch. It it's timeless. You can enjoy it at any age, any time of your life. It's and anyone. Yeah. Like it's still the concepts they talk about is still relevant to today. It's so it's so much fun. It's so <laughs> much fun to watch. Like, Although it wasn't that much fun in China to watch because uh, the notion of time travel disrespects history to them, so they banned the movie. They banned the movie. <laughs> China bans the weirdest movies. That's they are crazy. now just allowing Bohemian Rhapsody to be viewed in China. Just now? Although they're editing out all the, all the gay scenes in Bohemian Rhapsody. So you're only getting like half the movie, folks. But of course, <laughs> if, you didn't, if you didn't know that Freddie Mercury was, Mercury was gay, I mean, <laughs> I mean, again, where you been? Come on. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, the film school at USC actually uses this screenplay as a model for, quote, the perfect screenplay. Oh, it's great. This film is, it's all story. Yeah, it's, it's all incredible. story. I mean, one thing happens. Yeah. You know, and again, when you're using time travel as a plot device, yeah. you have to be really careful with how you structure your characters and your plot points. You really do have to be. So Bob Gale and Zemeckis get a ton of credit for making this screenplay because it's so hard to do a Don't. time travel screenplay that is coherent and entertaining. It is. I mean, it, it has. It's gone on to two sequels, which we mentioned. A television cartoon, which did not last that long. No, it did not. They made those cartoons never do last. I mean, the yeah. real Ghostbusters, yeah, Beetlejuice. Go- Beetlejuice. Yeah, I mean, I a ton that. of '80s movies got cartoons that just, just never panned died out. Died and should 90s. not have been made into cartoons. And it spawned several video games. It does. It is Telltale's. Oh yeah, Telltale's game is actually really good. It is. Yes, it's very exciting. I I had the chance to play that and I, I enjoyed it. Oh, and they used the uh, the real actors too. Yeah, to voice the dialogue, which is pretty cool. I mean, so I mean, what do you say now that we've kind of talked about the movie? What, why don't we rate it now? Let's rate it. All, All right. right. So for those unfamiliar with the show, we have kind of a four-tiered rating system. We have would not watch, would watch, would own, and would host viewing parties. You know, for this, I actually would host a viewing party. You know, if, that is that is my verdict as well. If there, if someone like I knew that never saw it, I'd be like, you have to come over and watch this. Yeah, this, this is, is something incredible. that this is an essential movie for i mean forget the forget the fact that it is a science fiction film this is an essential movie period to see it's really tough to like hate the film there's so many elements it covers and i think it just touches everyone in any way like you can relate to it from any essence so the comedy the pacing the score the tense drama yeah um i yeah i would host a viewing party all the time for this all the time maybe not maybe not for the 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 two sequels but i mean no 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 i mean i i would have i probably have like 60 people dressed up as marty mcfly for a viewing party well, 
right, I wouldn't go. I there. would. I would host a big old party. I mean, but I would what? have. I would. I would. I mean, this movie has like people have to see this movie. You have to dress up like Marty McFly to get in. No, oh, I mean, no costumes <laughs> optional. Cops. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I mean, but I would, I would, I personally would dress up as Doc Brown, get the big old hair going, and just the the manic look. The always what what great Scott, great Scott Marty, <laughs> get over here, Marty. Oh, we're doing buddy. a little Sub Zero in there. Um, so, um, what was so we talked about toxic fandom? What was your lens flare? Uh, lens flare. You know, I think it would. I think it would be the. Um, you know, I am Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan. That was your lens. Okay. That's that's the lens flare because you know it it just creates a big old plot hole in the movie. It's like, come on! I mean, in 1985, you uh, this it, it is 1985. Everybody saw Star Wars at least like six times by this point. <laughs> I mean, my dad saw it in theaters eight times when it when the original one came out. Everybody has seen Star Wars to this point. I know they never talk about that mysterious alien. Yeah, or never this brought guy, up again. Marty McFly that changed their lives. Mm-hmm. So it's fair. Mine's still Johnny B. Good. What about your? Uh, all right, for the red shirt. Mine was the pine. Yeah, it has to be the the, the lone pine. the lone pine that is murdered as Marty <laughs> is screaming out of Old Man Peabody's driveway. That it has to be that he runs over because in the beginning of the film it's the Twin Pine Mall. Yeah, at the end of the movie it's the Lone Pine Mall. The so lo- Marty, wait, really? It's yeah. the Lone Pine. I didn't catch that. You didn't catch no. that? Oh, that's a great little touch that the, that's that the writers amazing. put in there. Amazing! It's the Lone Pine Mall. Lone Pine Mall and Old Man Peabody. I mean, you murdered my pine. <laughs> That continuity, man, that is awesome oh, yeah. writing. Again, it's the perfect screenplay. Gosh, I love this film. All right. So I think we've uh, we've discussed enough about our love of Back to the Future. We have. So what do you say we pick our next movie? Let's do it. Let's All right, consult We're, we're going to enlist the help of our uh, very helpful random number generator AI, Major Samantha. And uh, we uh, pick, uh, pick from our list of 118 movies. And uh, let's see. She has selected uh, number 44, which is the 19... 19- 95 Terry Gilliam directed 12 Monkeys. So lots going on there. We have a a cataclysmic world-ending virus. We have uh, spotty time travel. We got a lot of Bruce Willis butt in that movie. (laughs) Endless butt. Endless butt. (laughs) Time travel. That's so dope. Yeah, so we're going to be doing back-to-back episodes of time travel, so be on the lookout for that. I right. think uh, that wraps it up for this week. I'm um, dead. So if you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It really helps drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you find podcasts. And please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, that's all one word, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for myself and Sean Culp, we'll see you next time. Forcefed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design and associate producer is Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.